0: To three, come with me, and you'll be in a world of do re mi fa do. You have found Daniel Donato's lost highway. Yeehaw! That lost highway.
1: Howdy, y'all, we are here, episode 45 of the Lost Highway Podcast. I am Daniel Donato, and this is the podcast of All Things Cosmic Country. And it is uh 8:28 in the morning uh here in Nashville. I'm gonna take a sip of this Bustello coffee out of this Grateful Dead mug. <sighs> Unbelievable. Tastes better because it's a Grateful Dead Mug. You know what I'm saying? Two thoughts this morning, y'all. So I was um, finishing some exercise at the gym this morning at the YMCA, right, doing a little bit of cardio, and I was scrolling through the A. Ritten Brothers discography on Spotify because music is free now, kind of, (laughs) and uh, the Minion Yet Yet record, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm going to confidently pronounce it incorrectly and probably fine. I've been a fan of theirs for... Over 10 years, I, I just, I love every song that they even put out. Even the songs I don't initially like, I go back to then years after. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, and that's the beautiful thing. So two things I'm thinking about here. Um, I just had this beautiful comfort scrolling through discography. It was like, man, they took a lot of swings before they actually had a hit at it. And we live in this culture now today where it's like, if people start thinking you're not, if you're not successful by the time you're 30, it's like, eh might as well hang it up and try to go do a little something different and it's like i don't really know if that's actually the case uh it's all right to take a lot of swings at something if you can build a community around you a circle around you and a lifestyle around you that creates joy and happiness while you're in the process of just pursuing success the thing that actually makes it tough and shitty and stressful the only thing that really makes it hard is the expectations you put on yourself now granted a lot of people might have you know, external variables that make things—you know—definitely add pressure and urgency to their life. Um, but watch out for the pressure that you're putting on yourself. Make sure it's wise, and make sure it's not coming from a unrealistic expectation that's not even grounded enough in a very rational and well thought out plan. And I'm very, very guilty of that. I've been doing it my whole life. Even since I was in fucking kindergarten, I remember doing it. So it might just be the way some people are wired. It might be uh, related to the personality traits of, uh, conscientiousness and, um, intellect, you know, which is the intelligence of, of abstract thought. Right. And then, um, I might be wrong cause I'm certainly a dumbass. And then, um, also industriousness uh if you're an industrious person and you might be intelligent and you also are pretty creative that might be hard like that might actually not be easy um it's pretty interesting thought now here's one more check this out i think if your mission statement is to deliver the truth and so you literally serve the truth almost as if it's like a as if it's a, a tangible force a force that is not abstract like Trey Anastasio, there's a great video of him. It's like a minute and 30 seconds long. He's like, music is the most real thing to me. And that hit me. It's like, yeah, you should let music be real to you. Like, let it be a real tangible feeling and let it be a real force that's in your life because music, it, at least on this planet, I guess, is just really just so, it's just truth is all it is. So if you can, it, good music that lasts, and here's what I'm getting at here. The Avid Brothers and a lot of bands like them whether you don't like them or not, they have served the truth and they were disciples of truth and practitioners of truth. And that led to obviously a lot of swings at bat. And uh, But you go and you listen to each record, you're like, yeah, each record's great. And that attracts a fan like me who's going to be with them for 10 years. And now here we are into 2021 and they've been doing this for decades now and they're only getting larger and they're only getting... More real, and and it's a beautiful thing. It's like so pursue the truth. Do not pursue some some identity that people want to put upon you. And here's the thing: and it's if you pursue the truth, and here's what I'm getting at: if you pursue the truth, we are so individualized. We are snowflakes of beings. Really, it's like, and that I think it's very true. Like we're all just so ourselves. And have you realized that the older you get? You only get more unique because you only have more life experience. And that allows you to only distill more of your own personality from your own experience because your perspective keeps completely enhancing because of the proprietary experience that this life simulation casts upon us. So if you pursue the truth, you're only going to render a truthful end product that is incredibly individual. Now, how refined and how consumable you want that to be that's up to you. Some people don't want to make things that are very consumable. That's fine, right? Some people are niched. Avery Brothers are rather niche. Like on the global scale, they're not huge like at all, right? Really, they're not. They're not going around the world doing stadiums, right? They're not a K-pop band doing $20 million in revenue on a live stream. No, but they have an amazing life. And they have an amazing fan base and an amazing thing going on with their music that is going to last. And it's... When they pass, the music will still keep going. And that's the beautiful thing, and I think that was the thing I was thinking about this morning. Again, a very fresh, raw thought here. I like to kind of distill my thoughts before I share them on the podcast, but I think uh, I think just going straight forward, improvising with this morning is truthful. Uh, so that's my intention here. And again, this isn't anything new. I've talked about before. I just think the truth really wins. Uh, and it was just another example of it this morning. So uh, it's all right if it takes you a couple swings at bat. It's taking me a, a several swings and uh, pursue the truth because you will find who you are in the truth and you will find the people who love who you are in the truth. Stay patient, stay persistent, stay positive. I don't know anyone who doesn't love at least one Bob Marley song. And since it's Bob's birthday this weekend, uh, I wanted to bring my friend Joe Jurgensen on here to talk about an idea that I've always kind of had an obsession with um joe is uh the author of the complete annotated bibliography of bob marley so he wrote a book that is a guide map as a guide to all of the books about bob and there's hundreds of them i was giving joe a couple private guitar lessons uh via zoom and we started talking a lot about his influences he likes the dead i love the dead he loves the dead too not likes and um, we, I wanted to ask him about this concept, which is there is such a direct correlation between classic country music and classic reggae music, right? So not in the modern sense of modern reggae and modern country, but in the classic sense. Um, I'm hearing them cover Willie Nelson songs. I hear, I hear Toots and the Maidles cover. Uh, country roads and it's like what is the deal here? How is this happening and why is this happening? Why are these two seemingly separate demographics loving the same songs? It's very interesting to me. I think it's because the truth knows no race, it knows no genre and it knows no country And so I wanted to get down to the bottom of that and talk to an expert in the reggae realm. there's a little a little alliteration for y'all and uh, talk about the magic and the wonders of reggae music and classic country music. So with no further ado, the very knowledgeable, the very kind,
2: Joe Jerkinsen.
1: What is up, my friend? How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Daniel. It's good to see you, man.
1: Thank you real so much for doing this. I mean... My,
2: it's my pleasure. Hopefully magic, I don't disappoint.
1: No, man, not at all. The, the magic of the podcast is that whatever happens, happens. And the thing, too, is I just love the story of this. So um, you are a real expert on all things reggae music, but particularly Bob Marley. And that was a huge part of my inspiration in the early years of music. And uh, we met by uh, mutual guitar instruction. You reached out to me for some lessons, and then we started talking about music. And then you sent me the book that you made of, of the uh, history of all the Bob Marley biographies that have been published. You sent me some Peter Tosh recordings. And something I've been really interested in is uh, the connection between country music and reggae. It's very real. Um, Johnny Cash having some reggae songs, Willie Nelson having some reggae songs, and uh, hearing a lot of covers of reggae music, um, like, you know, Toots and the Matles, or, or maybe Peter Tosh doing uh, Country Roads Take Me Home.
2: Yeah, Toots. Um, yeah. It's
1: like, what is up about that? And I think it's that mutual shared burden of hardship within the culture and, and a lot of elements similar to that. So, man, you're such an expert on this. I'm very ready to just pick your brain.
2: <laughs> well, I'll start by saying I'm I'm, um, I'm not an expert. I, I know a lot of experts in the different fields of, of reggae, per se, and especially Bob Marley and the Whalers and Peter Tosh. Um, if I have any expertise whatsoever, it would be about the books, um, just because I've been nose deep in those things for almost 20 years now. So wow. I, I know my books. Um Pretty well inside and out. I know every spine of every book. I know if I ever see a book that I've never seen, um, or it looks a little different, it'll catch my eye in a in a split second. Um Yeah, man. So yeah. uh yeah, I am I, I hate to say I'm far from an expert. I'm <laughs> oh, not a musicologist. I don't know everyone who played on all these tracks and this and that, like some of my friends do. I know guys who can, who can see any photo of Bob Marley and tell you not only what year it was, which is sometimes easy because of the length of his hair, they can tell you where it was. They they'll tell you the photographer who took it Wow! and they'll tell, they'll, they know how many photos that particular photographer got of Bob Marley on that particular shoot, Holy that particular shit. concert. These guys know their stuff inside and out. And I've seen guys that have different expertise. So I, I've seen guys that are just into seven-inch singles, into, into the 45s. What? Um, I've even seen guys who are only into the labels. They're not even necessarily into the, the actual record itself. They huh. just want to categor, you know, um, catalog every single label from every, every um, seven-inch single, 12-inch single. Yeah, Uh, 12-inch LP from around the world. Because as soon as you start getting outside of Jamaica, the USA, England, there's a lot more of the world that was getting these Bob Marley and reggae records. Um,
1: It's kind of weird. I had no idea that he kind of has almost a Grateful Dead-like following, where there's bootleg collectors and there's collectors of all ephemera, Whalers, and Bob Marley, and they know the they they're very archival in their knowledge and their people collect him and they collect his work in his in his truth that uh lives on in whatever medium that it is i had no idea because people like me uh, i largely probably just heard legend and that was enough and that was it for them because it's so dense with so much uh beauty you know it's in live recordings in demos right and um you ever tell me a crazy story about the the demo of redemption song
2: Yes, well, not even. Here's an interesting thing. I was taking my son to lacrosse last night. La um,
1: and I have a La about there.
2: There you go. <laughs> about five feet over that way, I probably have maybe 500 uh, different Bob Marley CDs uh, wow. and cassettes. But last night, I'm taking my son to lacrosse, and Redemption song, the band version, comes on, and that's what I was telling me about. The original version of Redemption song was a full band song. And right before they're about to put the album out, Chris Blackwell, who owned Island Records at the time, yeah. um, suggested to Bob that maybe you just try this one acoustic. Let's see what happens. And it, he had never done that on any of his albums—just an, an acoustic track like that. Oh man! So I believe he and his keyboard player Wyolinda—they um, they laid it down, probably one take, and put it on the album as the last song. And wow. it turned out to be, you know, the last song before he passed of an album that he was completely involved with and, and look what that song be, became. And I even told my son last night, you know, he's only 13. I don't know how engaged he was, but <laughs> the song probably would not have been that big had they not done that acoustic treatment because I even last night, I listened to it with, you know, some, some critical years and it's, it's not nearly as moving or catching as that, as that acoustic track.
1: What is it that you think encapsulates in, in in a short way why you're so obsessed with the music of Bob Marley and the Wailers?
2: Well, um, it, it probably goes back to even what you said about the Grateful Dead and a following. And yeah. it's similar to the Grateful Dead, but I would say it's the Grateful Dead times um, 100 million. Because what? there's not a place on earth you can go Oh. Not one place where you can go where you will not either see an image of Bob, hear Bob on the radio, wow, um, see someone wearing a t-shirt, see something spray painted on a phone booth or a brick wall. He has touched all four corners of this earth. And I believe he's the only musician that's ever done that and has staying power. He just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think what drew me to him is the same that draws a lot of people, which is just um, I mean, the music itself first draws you in. He, he had, he had a rhythm section of, of two brothers, Fams Barrett, Aston Family Man Barrett, and his brother Carly was on the drums. Those are his brothers? Whole, his, yeah, his whole international career. And in my opinion, those two guys, th- there's none better than Family Man on the bass and his brother Carly. The guy was an incredible drummer. So those two alone, they got your ear right away, just like on those legend songs. Yes, And then once you just, his lyrics, they're so easy to understand, you know, and he did that on purpose. He even said, um, my lyrics, I want them to be so easy that even a baby can comprehend and un- understand what I'm saying.
1: A lot of so, writers in Nashville will, will be on the first verse of a song and we'll have the first line that inspired the song. And then there'll be a couple of lines in. they're like, I don't like that. It's too simple. It's too easy to understand. And you're... But then you know what I'm saying? And it's like, there's a disconnect there between the per- the people who create and the people who consume. Yes. And Bob was very aware of the people who consume from what you're saying.
2: Very aware. He was making yeah. his Bob felt and knew he was on a mission. He knew his, his time on earth was limited. He had predicted, um, what? That he would be dead at 36. Um, And so it is well known that he was a taskmaster with his band. He rehearsed them as hard as any band leader can rehearse a, rehearse a band songs. They'd been playing for years. They would be in rehearsal and they say, Bob would go over and over and over the same song that they played a thousand times. You know, he wanted everything perfect.
1: I wonder why he,
2: he, um, because he knew how important it was. He knew he was taking this message to the world and he knew he was planting seeds out there and he didn't want any misunderstandings, misconceptions. And he wanted to obviously be taken seriously in the beginning um, and not be a, a novelty act, a Jamaican novelty act, which reggae was kind of viewed at, you know, as he was starting off, it was, it was considered novelty music. And, Wow. He, this was serious business to him. I mean, this was a serious, of serious gifts. He believes he was born to do exactly what he did. He even said those lyrics weren't really his. It was just Ja or God was just using him as a conduit to put these lyrics out to, out to the world, even to non, non-English speaking people. And we see that they understand it. Um,
1: oh, man. And he everywhere
2: he channeled. went. Yeah. Wow. He channeled it. He channeled it big time.
1: Man, a lot to unpackage on that because you hear a lot of people, even in a modern sense, you hear a lot of people say ideas are just, that we're just a conduit. Uh, Bob Weir infamously, uh, maybe not too infamously, Joe Rogan says the same thing. Um, And I I read it in from writers like Kurt Vonnegut to people uh, that are artists, like in, in um, in in a painting sets like Wes Lang, Um, you know, who did, uh, you know, of course, that 90 uh, Spring Tour Grateful Dead album. And it's like, interesting. It's funny to see how truth can come into somebody's mind, the same truth to someone who's in Jamaica, to, to the dude who's in San Diego, to the dude who's in Maine. You know what I mean? It's just like truth doesn't really understand boundaries and geography like we might be setting upon ourselves, like race and, oh, music from Jamaica is just novelty music. But if somebody has enough truth in their thought process, they can create something that sounds like it's everlasting and timeless.
2: Absolutely. And, and Bob obviously was speaking the truth. This, this guy had... um an incredibly tough life as a youth. Oh, really? Um, very tough. He he was born in the hills of Jamaica. His his mom was about 18 years old, black lady. Holy shit. And his dad was a 63-year-old white, you know, kind of um plantation, not a, you know, <sighs> an overseer of the land, so sort to of speak. It's, it's kind of uncertain exactly what his role was. Sometimes yeah. he's been hyped up to be um, some sort of, general or something in the army, but he wasn't anything like that. He was just a um a Jamaican-born guy who went up to Nine Mile where Bob was uh Bob's mom lived. Ninety mile? And nine mile. It's nine, nine miles. miles out of out of Kingston, the uh capital.
1: Is did Eminem just steal that or what?
2: <laughs> no hey, on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean nine mile is very special. I went up there with my wife. I dragged her up there on her on our wedding anniversary. Oh beautiful um, and which is 20 years this, this year. So 20 years, our, our honeymoon, I should say, we, I took her up to nine miles and, and we saw Bob's, the house he lived in. Wow. Which is uh, the size of, you know, a small garage, two little rooms. And even when he needed to get away as an international superstar, he would go back up to the country. Even times when he had writing blocks, he would go up to the country and he would just work in the fields and, and, and plant his corn and um inspiration would come to him and he'd go back into the city and 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 lay down the tracks in the studio
1: whoa funny man you hear a lot of great artists doing that john denver never stayed in the city always Hmm. lived out in the country he was couldn't he said it clouded his train of thought interesting to see that and we're talking about people who have channeled you know hits that transcend race and transcend countries and wow man yeah what was the how did bob get into the concept of him being on a journey how did he discover that what was his call to power
2: um you know they said his mom always said uh, even as a youth up there in nine mile he was um almost a clairvoyant he would read people's palms he oh, man. <laughs> and and according to the people he was pretty accurate with his palm reading but at about five years old his dad his dad, as soon as he was born, was pretty much non-existent. And at about five years old, his dad convinced his mom to let him come and take Bob from the, from the hills, from the country, bring him into Kingston and in the city to get a proper education, which she reluctantly agreed to. Uh, in, in the end, he ended up just dropping him off with an old lady to take care of and fend for himself for about two years. No I so I I have three kids now. All of them have been five years old at one time. Most five year olds don't know how to tie their shoe, more or less fend for themselves in one of the world's roughest cities, Kingston, Jamaica, and, and care for somebody completely on his own. He was almost considered an outcast because of the color of his skin. You know, he was a he was a, a mixed breed. They call him. Oh. Um, even some of his relatives on his dad's side called him the little, little German boy and. Um, terrible. He had a hard time with that. And that all of that is just what kept going into his mind and the idea of a rejection. And, and there's a pretty good documentary out there called Bob Marley or just called Marley. I should say the latest documentary is put out however many years ago. And the whole theme of that movie is rejection. How Bob was basically just kind of rejected his whole life and, and really had a fear of rejection Although they, they omitted the part I just talked about, which to me is the almost the genesis of his rejection. I mean, his only father takes him out and leaves him on the street. Uh, he, he never saw him again. He died when Bob was about 10 years old.
1: My um, God, what?
2: Yeah. And so he the guy grew up, it, it was not easy. But as soon as he went back into the hills, he told his mom he stopped reading poems. He's singing songs now sing her a little Mentos type Calypso song. And she eventually moves down into the city with him. And he, one thing leads to another. And he was a welder at the time. So he's about 15, 16 years old and catches a piece of metal in his eye. oh, And very painful. And pleads with his mom to let him go into the music business and stop off this, you know, hands-on manual labor stuff that's going to put metal in his eye she agrees well wow. and at 16 years old he goes into the studio and, and records two songs that he wrote himself at 16 and they still stand at this time the lyrics that he put out at 16 years old with his first song judge not are incredible judge Even not was, yeah
1: you want to look on tiktok now and what people are singing at 16 it's not
2: judge not it's not judge not right before you judge yourself you know. That's a
1: classic song.
2: Yeah, it's, it, yeah. Um, he
1: just had it in him. He, he had,
2: had he had it in him, no doubt about it. See, no uh, one would ever st-
1: thought this, man. People would have thought Bob Marley was, a you know, if you think of the archetype, of, of, which probably is wrong, the stereotype of someone who's from Jamaica, someone who's just kind of stoned, drinking out of a coconut all day and not rehearsing. And mm-hmm. It's just not accurate at all. Like, and that's no. very very low-level, topsoil I don't think that at all, but you could kind of think about that and it would just be and it's not factual. And it's like, yeah. well, that's very wild to hear the depth of his story.
2: Wow. Sure. Yeah. And the musicians that surrounded him at the time, we're talking 19, you know, 61, 62. Uh, these guys were top-notch musicians in Jamaica. They've been listening to American radio and and a lot of it was still a lot horn based with the ska wow. music. These guys were virtuoso musicians who probably practice on average, you know, 18, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, because that's what that's what they did. They, they practice their music and they're going into the studio and laying tracks down um, with one track recorders. Everyone's live. There are no mess ups. You don't. You, there's no time for screw ups. You know, there's no overdubs, obviously. Uh, when
1: did Bob start playing guitar?
2: He would have started before that that song in in sixty one. Judge not, wow! Right around probably when he he and Bunny. So the the Whalers originally were three guys: Bob Marley and his is Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, who at the time was Bunny Livingston. And when they kind of all broke up in seventy three and went their solo ways, I didn't hear I didn't
1: know Peter What's Tosh that? was in the Whalers. I had no idea. I thought it was just the the just the less famous bob marley
2: yes so there that, that's a whole other story about the name the whalers but peter tosh was, uh, was a guitar player and he was a guitar player mm-hmm. in the whalers he was the one who taught bob how to play guitar and it's even written in 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 one of the books and chris alitz's book the first time because bunny and bob were they were they Bob's mom and Bunny's dad actually had, you know, a uh, uh, love connection and had a child as a result. So they even share a, oh, wow. a half sibling. So they, these two are running around, they're harmonizing, they're singing, they're ready to, to, wow. you know, go into the music business <laughs> and they run around a corner we're going to get to the first little country thing here. They go around the corner one day and run into this tall guy about six foot four named Peter Tosh playing a guitar. Um, and, and sing, singing, um, yippee, you know, Ghost Riders in the Sky.
0: What are you serious? That's
2: the song the guy's singing, according to Bunny. An old cowboy went riding
1: out one dark and windy day.
2: That's it, what, sir. That's the song he's singing. So, the first time these three link up, Man. one of them's singing an old country western song, you know. Oh, um, my. And from there, they, they formed the trio. They, they went through some name changes. They had a mentor, this guy named Joe Higgs, who is a, a legendary uh, Jamaican singer and just all-around music guy. And he took them under his wing. He was a few years older than them, and he taught them harmony and, and wrote them hard. So after Bob's first song, it wasn't probably two, two and a half years before they recorded their first song went back into the studio. So for a good two years, they just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And then finally went to the studio and dropped their first single, which was called simmer down.
1: How would that one do
2: it, That one was a hit. Bob's oh. first ones weren't so much of a hit, but as soon as they went to uh, simmer down and they're talking to the people, the kids in the street, the rude boys, as they call them simmer down, um, it's getting too hot. They just wanted to to cool the atmosphere a little bit, you know. What a simple, uh,
1: you could say simmer down right now
0: in
2: twenty
1: yeah. one already. And it's like,
2: yeah.
1: wow, so simple. Where is that simplicity coming from? Have you read up about his approach to that and letting that be part of his conduit?
2: All, you know, all I really know is he just intentionally, and obviously from an early, early age there and early in his songwriting, he wanted simple songs. Uh, The message to get through crystal clear to anyone that was listening, no ambiguity, you know? Man,
1: (laughs) that's so astounding. Cause it's like the thing that's really weird about someone who makes things is that you, you have to get over the initial love of how it feels today. And then you get over the initial love of how it feels a week from after it's made a month, a year, but Bob Marley songs aren't going anywhere. No. like they're staying around as long as there's music
2: they're staying around as long as their music may be the longest of anyone I mean um you know bob even said his, his music will last forever
0: he, he said that he
2: what? said it himself this guy Wait. he just knew how special it was and he and he said he said yeah my music will last forever what and he not in and not in any sort of arrogant or cocky way because bob wasn't like that at all he was very accessible to the people when he was in jamaica he would hold court in his yard and when people needed money they would come see bob and he would talk to everyone and he would mingle with everyone and was very accessible his whole career never turned down an interview didn't matter how rough things were didn't matter if he had cancer racing through his body never never turned down an interview because it was another opportunity to get the message across but in his, in his interviews, he never talked music. He never talked about his songs in interviews. He basically just talked about Rastafari and, and you know, his, his religion and Jah, And that's what he wanted to get through in his interviews and then let the let the music speak for itself. Kind of get both sides of it. Two, two, two birds with one stone, you know.
1: My God, that's heavy. And there's so many artists out there giving interviews where it's all about their own story and their own thing. <laughs> and he was selfless. He was a he was a servant to the muse, to jaw, to God. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um so if it's that's the weird thing too. Like, have you ever thought about the fact that this is someone who's creating music openly for and through and with God in what he calls God, right? Ja. Is it Jaw or Ja?
2: Ja, like Jah. Jah. Jehovah
1: oh come on back yeah
2: j-a-h yeah and then of Um, course the rastafari so you got god and then the we we can get in that later or whatever if you want but yeah (laughs) well it's Um, funny because
1: it's religious music at that point but i bet there's a lot of people out there who listen to quote-unquote uh music that is for religion and they might not dig bob marley and there's a great irony to be found there um, have you has that thought ever struck you where it's like
2: the thought that has crossed my mind on several times and I've talked to people about this is, yeah, it would be interesting if Bob substituted mm. Jesus for every time he said Ja or Selassie. I bet most people would probably get, you know, turned off to it in a way. It would seem very preachy or Christian music because uh, he says it a lot. But it comes off very smooth in the context of his music. But if he just changed that to Jesus, I have a feeling um it wouldn't go over quite as well. There are some Christian reggae bands out there and it, they do all right but but nothing like the ones um espousing Rastafari and Haile Selassie
1: so what is uh what what is that second that second staple that you just mentioned?
2: Highly slassy.
1: I have no familiarity with that at all.
2: Okay, so highly, this is the foundation of of, of Rastafari. Oh, um, and you would never say Rastafarianism because they don't deal in isms or schisms, you know. So what you're Rastaf- talking
1: about, no isms or schisms. What?
2: Yeah, it's just um, um, it's just even in get up stand up, we're sick and tired of the ism schism. You know, die to go to heaven in Jesus' name. We know and we overstand. Living God a living man um, so it, it goes back to the early 1900s around 1930 maybe Haile Selassie well even a little bit before that there, there was a there was a great man out of Jamaica Marcus Garvey he was almost a Martin Luther King type of guy and he was all about um, black pride, black freedom returning to Africa repatriation, And he supposedly told the people as he was leaving Jamaica to go out and spread the message one day, look to the east for the crowning of a king. And when that day comes, he will be the redeemer. So fast forward a few years, 1930, this guy gets crowned emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie. He claimed direct blood lineage to King David and Queen of Sheba. And if you read the book of Revelations, it says when Christ returns, he'll be the king of kings, the lord of lords, conquering line of the tribe of Judah. He'll be of the root of David. And those are the titles he took on when he became emperor. He became highly Selassie, king of king, the lord of lords, conquering line of the tribe of Judah. Mm-hmm. So these guys back in Jamaica, they're reading the newspaper.
0: Mm-hmm. They
2: go to their Bible and they say that, that this is the return of Jesus Christ as it's written in the Bible.
1: How did and, it play out for Selassie? Was was he truthful in his intention?
2: Well, he he always denied he he was you know the return of Christ. He never acknowledged that in any way. He oh, was wow. an extremely um, religious man with with the Ethiopian Coptic Church um, and knew, knew religion even at a young age. You know, they said four or five years old. He knew Bible verses and stuff that no one had ever told him. It was. It was in him, but he always denied this whole God thing. He knew what was going on because he even visited Jamaica in, in 1966
0: hmm.
2: to a throng of 100,000 people who greeted his plane at the tarmac. And I don't think he had ever seen anything like that. Took him even a little while to get off the plane, um, but he toured the island and he ended up even in giving land to the Rastas in Ethiopia for them to repatriate if, if they wanted to shamani is called um but he always denied it. he always denied that he was but it didn't matter because the people said you know only the true god is going to deny that he's the true god you know they they've got a they've got an answer for every every which way and there was even a coup that that overthrew him in, in 75 and and um and they said, you can't kill god you know god's in the birds god's god's everywhere so you can't kill about god my God. Um, but that's the religion, Rastafari. So um, that was Haile Selassie's birth name, Rastafari. And uh, that was mm-hmm. the name that they, they started with this religion. And they started, you know, giving away photos of them in the king- streets of Kingston in the 30s and 40s. And they started camps up in the hills. that started praising Selassie and chanting hymns to him. Wow. And then when reggae comes along, they started putting all that into music. Um, sure, kind of the message—the message of the faith—put to solid drum beats and, and bass lines. Yeah, and they're, still, they're still doing it to this day.
1: It's funny though; there hasn't been something like Peter Tosh and Toots and the Maytals are the closest thing that I listen to that hit me in that same chromosome or place that Bob Marley hits me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder why there hasn't been another is a pungent source.
2: I don't know. I I mean, toots is toots. I I don't even, this guy is on a pedestal so high. He was so talented and was, was really doing his own thing. Um, But as far as Peter and Bob, I kind of put them on the same level. Bob obviously got to be much more popular. His songs are probably a little more catchier. Huh. He his his whole persona maybe came off a little better to the people of the world than Peter, who maybe seemed a little rougher. You know, I've sent you a, a couple of videos of Peter, and
1: yeah. And, will you explain to me? You were talking about how Peter, you you, something about up and down, and how they were changing the the prefix of a word.
2: Oh well, Peter, Peter was a linguistic magician. Huh. so on the spot or or even stuff he thought about so yeah he would say you you, you don't understand something you you overstand because you don't want to be under something you want to be you know over it um
1: what a thought like that's so oh, abstract
2: he, yeah um he he just had all sorts of you know he was big into into the word bumble clot and ross clot and but blood clot which is a pretty vulgar word for the most part in Jamaica even today in 2021 some people just shudder when you say that word but peter wrote a song called Bumba clot <laughs> and, and put it out there cuz he said it's just a word and one night when vampires were holding him down that was what he was told to say to get them off bumba clot and as soon as he did that the vampires are gone he writes a song oh bumba clot and Some people look at it as in disgust where I look at it as the guy is just, he was a genius and he had a sense of humor and it may, his sense of humor may not have come off in his professional sphere when he's out on tour or getting interviewed and in the interviewers trying to ridicule him for whatever reason. Um, but he was known as being a very funny, funny guy who liked to joke around and, and, uh, and obviously you watch some of his speeches and the, the humor's there if you if you if you can overstand it
1: overstand it that's a real what is it like how um obviously not the same uh i think it was kanye west he was talking about um how in africa they don't do diets but they do lifes. Hmm. have the word die in in your in regards oh to yeah
2: i wonder yes, they where- don't dedicate anything even when my mom passed away I, I played a little song at this museum up in columbus ohio that they were doing a thing for her. and <laughs> i said in front of this crowd of you know you can imagine the crowd at the columbus museum of Art. and i said i'm going to libicate this song to my mom you know because i don't want to dedicate anything to anybody i want to libicate it to her that's another peter tosh word there so you what? know everything you, you libicate it you, you why would you want to? you know diet dedicate
1: so that explains the um geez you sent me some of your albums too Acoustic. yeah so are you kind of you're kind of taking that same concept there of using words for how they literally should be not because how somebody told you to say them
2: yeah no the, the whole um, idea of Acoustic that was a name i came up with a long time ago at the outset of high school and and w- our music was very acoustic we played acoustic reggae so it was in my my years, it was a its own little thing. We weren't even using electric guitars. We were using regular drums and electric bass, but That's cool. a lot of acoustic guitars. So jacoustic. It, it came together like that.
1: What's funny how it's like if you take it's like redemption song, it's it's looping back to the conversation of uh country, like how reggae and those are similar. It astounds me that still to this day, it's a man. And the thoughts that he translated in an acoustic guitar is the only proof of a greater power that you really could ever need if it's done in that way that is vibrationally sound.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And the acoustic guitar down in Jamaica, it's a big instrument. You know, they were uh, there's still a lot of acoustic guitars down there, but the early onset of ska, and rock steady, and reggae were a lot of acoustic guitars, and and Bob always had an acoustic guitar handy. So wrote probably the majority of these songs on the acoustic guitar before they, they got to the, the band setting. And Peter Tosh, I have an album of Peter Tosh where he, he did a whole uh, tour of radio stations with just his acoustic guitar. And it, it, it's amazing. Man, the guy was uh, very, Man. very good on, with his guitar. And Bob was a great guitar player as well, I think.
1: But Peter was definitely the more prolific and more pro- 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 proficient one.
2: Yes. And Peter, you know, taught Bob how to play the guitar at first. And, and Peter, um, when the Whalers were first starting and went on their first tour in 73, it was just Man. Peter and Bob on the guitars. They didn't have any other guitar players, no keyboard players. Wow. And so Bob would just hold down the rhythm in the pocket. And Peter, with his new wah-wah pedal and whatnot, he would just go off and, and be a regular, you know, lead guitar player if he wasn't singing lead on the song.
1: So that's him on, like, uh, No Woman, No Cry.
2: No, no, no. Um, so, they they broke up in 1973 Okay, because, you know, it could be a... Peter and Bunny felt like Bob was getting too much of the spotlight from Island Records for the t- first two albums. And, and they felt that they needed a little bit of their own spotlight, rightfully so, because they all went solo, and the two of them, all three of them ended up putting out tremendous works. Oh, wow. So in hindsight, for a fan, thank God they broke up. It would have been nice to see them together, but wow. now we get three times the music because they decided to do that. Uh, right. So after that, they brought on Junior Marvin and Al Anderson, uh, Junior from the U.K. and Al from the U.S., and even Donald McKinsey along the way a little bit. but. Um, that's who's playing those so- the solo like on No Woman, No Cry, you know, Junior Marvin. So Peter was not in the picture anymore. Um, That would have been in 1975 where No Woman, No Cry came about.
1: From a musical theory perspective, you, you in um, respect to the content that we've been discussing on our private one-on-one sessions, we're talking a lot about major pentatonic and we're talking about, uh-huh. about one, four, five, and six minor and like, you know, um, three little birds is those chords, no woman, no cry and a variation of those chords and the soloing that's going on over that music is pretty similar to what a country musician would be playing. Sure. Very fascinating sure. to see that manifest.
2: Yeah. Or even, you know, they they were, both those guys are probably coming from a, more of a blue standpoint. And what happened is, is the, the whalers Bob and Bunny and Peter, they're in England. They get stranded in England from uh, Johnny Nash. Johnny Nash was kind of the guy I can see clearly now. Um, He was kind of the guy that broke Bob Marley to begin with. He's down there in Jamaica. He goes to a ground nation, which is kind of a Rasta gathering with drums and all that. Mm. He meets this guy, Bob Marley, a young, young Bob Marley, and goes back to his hotel room and says, I just met this guy out there who played me dozens of songs of his, and every single one's a hit. Every song he played (laughs) is a hit. So they signed Bob to a little contract, take him out on the road in the UK, leave him high and dry. So they decide to roll into Island Records office in London and ask to see Chris Blackwell, who's the president, who who is a Jamaican, but kind of went back and forth between, you know, he's he's a well-to-do Jamaican and um, started his own record company, Island Records. And they went in there and convinced him to sign him and he gave them about $8,000 that day to go back to Jamaica and record an album and deliver it to them. So they go and they record catch a fire with that $8,000, which is an incredible album. Wow. When they deliver it to him back in England, yeah. Chris wants to rockify it a little bit, make mm-hmm. it a little more accessible to the rock audience. Cause that's who he's trying to, to break them in. You know, he had traffic Steve Winwood. That was a big band of his. And, He just felt like the Whalers would do well if it just uh, was attracted to a few more ears. So he had some studio musicians come in and record all this guitar stuff and more keyboard stuff and really changed it up a little bit. If you hear the two albums, they're 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 pretty different. Um, But you can't fault some people fault Chris for doing that. You know that he diluted the music or somehow. Uh, it wasn't as pure after Chris got his hands on it. But it, in my opinion, he, he look. I mean, look at the end result. He knew what he was doing and it worked. Bob was okay with it. So, you know. Okay.
1: I bet Bob was probably all right with a lot of, a lot of flexing of, of certain things, but it seems like with lyrics and him singing the songs, he wasn't going to let anybody get in the way of that.
2: Yeah, no. There's even a song later in his career called um, Punky Reggae Party. And, uh, and written by, by uh, Lee Perry. And his, his, his drummer, Carly and fans didn't want to play on it. They felt it wasn't roots enough. It wasn't, you know, roots rock reggae, which they were into. Bob said, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll get other musicians. I'll, I'll go into the studio and lay it down myself. You know, he didn't care. He, oh. um, he was never going to let that sort of thing stand in his way. Man. Continuing on his mission. Someone saying he wasn't reggae enough, or he wasn't roots enough, or he wasn't Jamaican enough. He was very smart in mixing uh very clear, perfect Queen's English with his lyrics, but just the right amount of Jamaican patois. So he always appealed to the Jamaican people because every song's got a little something in it. It may go right over most people's heads or ears. Um, but it, it's it, it's in there, just little phrases, little sayings. Um, so he always kept that, that Jamaican.
1: What's a good example things. of that?
2: Um well let's let's think of um one one cocoa full of basket. Used to be, live big today, tomorrow buried in a casket. So one 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 cocoa fill full of basket. Um, wow. That's just a Jamaican term. A lot of Jamaican antidotes. There's a book about all Bob's lyrics written by a Jamaican who who breaks down all the stuff. Even for a guy like me, it's like, oh wow, I, I never, I never knew that's what that's what he was saying or that's what he meant. Um, you know, suss upon active. you. Oh, spread um, rumors. You know, so just li- little Jamaican stuff like that it's funny
1: that there's a grateful dead book called uh i think it's called the grateful dead lyrics annotated or something like that and it's yeah it's right have over it. there man right you get into that book and you look at Direwolf and you look at funario, and it's like yes. it's in a real place but in your mind it evokes the right chemicals for it to be a real enough place for you to make <laughs> a song
2: i got an idea what fenario looks like in my head yeah you're absolutely right you know yeah um And the interesting thing is Robert Hunter, he never liked to tell people what those lyrics were because he wanted it to be their lyrics, what they felt, what they thought Fenario was. He didn't want to spoil it by telling them what he thought Fenario looked like. Where where Bob, um, he tells exactly what his lyrics mean. So there's no misunderstanding of what he's talking about, you know. Really? A real difference right there, if you think about it.
1: And that manifests within Bob's maybe interviews or is it just within the simplicity of the lyrics themselves?
2: I think um, both, you know, the simplicity of the lyrics um, speaks for itself and then he would back it up in, in interviews um, when he would say, you know, uh, I, I, I want, I want this, these lyrics to be so simple that even a baby can understand them
1: i mean robert hunter
2: probably would never say anything like that
1: that's the thing so wild that's so wild that somebody was that empathetic for the listener i mean it's it's not wild it's common sense but you don't hear about people doing that like on their natural accord it's not to do that
2: yeah Um, that's
1: why that's beautiful
2: yeah he like i said he he was on a mission from from 1961 until 1981 he, he he was on a mission every day of his life seven days a week whoa man um, so is and there
1: if, any like um have you ever looked into bob's process his creative process and, and work ethic what he was doing
2: well, um yeah, the the process i believe there's there a few processes sometimes he'd be in his bedroom he wrote a lot of songs just in his bedroom with his guitar i've got several cds that have never seen the light of day. The, the The family's not the best at putting out what we think they should put out. They're not good at putting out his live concerts. They're not put good at putting out demos, acoustic songs. And I have dozens of acoustic songs of just him in his bedroom where he presses record and, and starts playing these songs that that the, the the people have never heard these things. But they, the family feels like what he put out was the best of the best and why, why mess with it by putting out so-called inferior music. But at the very least, let, let's put out his live albums like the Grateful Dead does. They yeah. have enough live concerts to, to put one out every year for the next 300 years. You know, so there's no reason, in my opinion, to hold those back. Um, but so that was definitely one process he had, was, was writing these songs by himself in his bedroom with his acoustic guitar but then his band members would would provide stuff as well and they would work stuff out at rehearsals and family man his bass player was his arranger so Bob might just come in with with some chords Damn. and the melody and and that's one of his most special gifts I think his gift of melody and I think his son Ziggy got it his son yep. kimani, got his gift of melody where they can just sing any line and say, oh that's a hit song i'm sure that's what johnny nash heard when he was there was the guy who was just spitting out melody after melody and everyone just caught the ear like oh my god that's so good you know one love one heart let's get together and feel all right it's i'm sure that's what johnny heard during wow that. man so um,
1: simple
2: my God! But but, it, Family Man arranged all those songs. So when they needed to finally get down to the brass tacks and get these things arranged, Family Man would put it all in order. And yep. Then they'd rehearse the hell out of them. Yep. Then they'd hit the studio and press record. And,
1: and it's live. And there we go.
2: It, yeah, there we go. And then we My hit. God. And then we hit. It, then we hit the road. We go on tour. And that was the big thing about Bob, where Bonnie and Peter. Peter was a pretty good tour. Um Bunny, he left the first tour in '73, quit the band because he life on the road wasn't for him. You know, life in 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 the cold snow of of northern England oh. wasn't for Bunny. And yeah. and eating, you know, junk food as he as he would say. So, but Bob knew he had to get on the road if he was going to spread this message. And he knew he had to get up early to go do an interview. It didn't matter. And they said he was the last one up every night, and he was the first one up every morning. He was the first one on the bus. He was the last one off the bus. Oh, um, a work ethic like like no other. But he so he hit the road with that band and would play any show. Um, heck, even in 1980, right before he he eventually succumbs to his cancer, he's opening for the Commodores at Madison Square Gardens. And people around him said, Bob, you're not an opening act. You, you just played for 100,000 people in Italy. What? You're not an opening act. And Bob Bob wanted to reach that audience that the, that the Commodores were bringing in. He always wanted to reach the black audiences, you know, because a lot of the audience, when you go play, especially in the U.S., but I'm sure elsewhere, the majority, it was white people in the audience. And he wanted, um, wow. he even sang a song, you know, play Eye on the R&B. I want all my people to see, you know, we're bubbling on the top 100, just like a mighty dread. He wanted the radios to play his songs. He wanted the black people to come out to his shows. And so that was a way to get in front of a crowd that's going to come out and see the Commodores. Now they said both nights and two nights in a row, he blew the roof off the place. And as soon as he was finished half of Madison square gardens left with him, you know, but <sighs> Whoa!
1: Can you imagine Bob Marley at Madison Square Garden? That might no. be one of the best things ever.
2: Sure, sure. It, it would be, uh, it would be amazing.
1: My God! To see him
2: at any of these venues, really. If I could have,
1: it sounds like he had. It sounds like vision is the thing that was his guiding light. It was the vision and, and his mission thereof for it. Man, that's beautiful. It's funny to see it all play out. Even it keeps on playing and it keeps on growing after his
2: passing. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, he had 11 children. Whoa, sure. Uh, He has... uh, Is that
1: part of the... Is that part of... uh, Is that cultural or is that more of a religious practice to have? That would probably be
2: more cultural in Jamaica, you know, because only one wife, Rita, who he had three children with, one adopted child. And that... So those are the the oldest four, um, Sharon and Sedella, Ziggy and Stephen. So those were Rita and Bob's four children. Those are the four that became Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers for all these beginning years. But then you have uh, Damian Marley and you have Julian Marley Mm. and Kimani Marley, who's probably my favorite. And now we're into the grandchildren. We got Joe Mursa and (laughs) and a couple of these other grandchildren. They're at it. And I tell you what, they're all talented. This isn't, this isn't kids just riding grandpa or dad's coattails. They they all have a very special talent, and um, it's all good. It's, it's, it's all really, good. It's all good. All the music these kids are putting out, it it, does, it never disappoints my ears.
1: And you you definitely in our conversations that we've had, you have no problem being transparent about your opinion about something, especially if it falls below an, an expectation you know and so you would you would say that cuz you see that a lot you see a lot of people with a uh, cool dads who are in, in music or cool dads or moms that are actors and actresses and they, they the children try to go and pursue it and the light is not there
2: no it's a very and, interesting thing and yeah, we see that we've seen it in music and we won't i won't name who i think i've seen it with but yeah with bob's kids it's it's no joke they they got touched by his gift it came through him into them i have no doubt about it um you know especially ziggy ziggy's the eldest son i believe ziggy was born in 1968 so he's probably about 52 now ziggy has put out he's got to be close to 20 albums i would say and every every song is it's it's good you know he doesn't and he's got the gift of melody like his dad so he can just sing a melody and he's got you
1: the gift of melody yeah man. yeah there is a um the thing that kind of mainly sparked this idea too was countrymen the willie nelson album yeah it's like we're talking about the the dojo master that has spent the most time serving the music country music then it's gotta be anyone alive It's willie nelson especially at that degree you're talking about the yoda Yes. Uh, You know, in the realest way of the force and truly, and for him to go in and serve that, the muse down in Jamaica, very fascinating. That sparked my curiosity. So I'd like to know what you think about that whole thing. Maybe what you know about it.
2: Well, so it's great that Willie did that, right? I mean, Willie is, uh, Willie's the greatest. He's the coolest. And the fact he went down to Jamaica and records country man and embraced the music like that. But I've, country music in Jamaica it, it's very big and and I've talked to some people in, in preparation for talking with you today Oh, right just on. To, just to see firsthand how did this music get down there and there is there is a lineage to it that you can trace back and, and it really goes back to um, the 40s and 50s they're, they're watching a lot of these western movies in the in the movie theaters picking up on the country and western theme so that alone already started their fascination with country music and with outlaws and with names like josie wales who there's a reggae you know toaster who took that as his name and they've always and it's big throughout the whole caribbean and they were getting they were getting signals from radio stations down from nashville you know they would get signals out of miami and they'd get signals out of New Orleans, but they got some out of out of Nashville. Wow. And even in Billboard magazine says, in I think it's 65, they got a letter from someone in Jamaica says he's listening to, to uh, country music out of Nashville. And, and as we see in 1956 or so when Bob and Bunny first meet Peter, what he's singing a country western song, you know, that's that's wow. what he's doing. There we go. And it's the storytelling, you know, they yep. like a good story down there for sure. And, and country music tells a story and they don't really classify uh, country music or blues music or R&B. It's just music from a foreign. So in Jamaica, anything's not from Jamaica. It's a foreign. Wow. And it's not really a category except it's, it's a foreign. Beautiful. So it's not Jamaican, it's it's, it's foreign. And a they like the the kind of the downtrodden nature that that I think country kind of comes from, and 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 picking yourself up and telling a story and and overcoming struggles and family, and that's that's right up their alley.
1: Family, that's the thing too. Where uh, there was a billboard here in town that had like a, a promo shot of. Of a live stream album release show we were doing and i wanted to show my sister um and we got a photo of it and as we were driving as we were waiting for the billboard it was like a led electronic changing billboard there is all kinds of photos on there so we're waiting a couple minutes outside and this car comes driving by us and what's playing through it was like i think it was "WAP" wop by cardi b which is just like so not that family thing and it's it's very crazy to see, to, to come to the thought where it's like, that's one of the most popular songs in the world right now, but will it be in like 10 years or 20 years? Because it seems like those songs that are seated in love and seated in family and those songs that come from those tried and true morals of life that all of Bob's songs are, those are the ones that actually stand the test of time.
2: Mm-hmm. No doubt. And yeah, that song's not going to, it won't be around, you know, come late spring. I, I hope at least. Yeah. <laughs> like I, said, I got kids. I know that song. It's as bad as it gets, you know, lyrically and just in general. Yeah, it is. Are you trying terrible. to play this
1: music for your kids? Are you trying to turn them on to it or are you not?
2: Oh, they, yeah. We have um, a very musical house and it's not just reggae by any means. Um Nice. You know, I'm big into, into, into hip hop and whatnot. I was in a in a hip hop reggae band after college for many years. We tried to make it. That's where I met my wife. And a lot of a lot of guitars, a lot of drums, a lot of music in the house. And I, I have a son who just turned sixteen a, a couple of weeks ago, and he's big into the the new school hip hop. You know, it was referred to as mumble rap not too long ago. Yeah, um, but his his favorite guy is this Juice World. Guy. And he would oh, pass. Yes, he would play me track after track of all these guys, whatever, whatever the name is, 21 Savage. And I would dismiss it. Boom, boom, boom. But yeah. you know, when you hear, I'm like, no, that's a good one. This guy's got talent. And it just kept turning out to be Juice World every single time. Oh, I would wow. say, now here's a good one. This guy and um that guy was talented. I mean, unfortunately, he was, you know, hooked on prescription pills, and that's what he died from, basically, heroin. Um, but, uh, he, that kid was loaded with talent and it's really sad. You know, it was cut so short for sure.
1: Um, I heard this quote the other day. Someone said, uh, Bob Dylan is, is just mumble rap for boomers.
0: It's like, I,
2: mean, I, I love that. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, well, I used to always want to make a shirt that said "There's only one Bob," and then on the back say "And it ain't Dylan or Seeger," and then have a picture of Bob. <laughs> but that would be kind of mean. Maybe I don't know. Because
1: you think uh, would Bob Marley want that piece of that merchandise? No, no,
2: no, no. Yeah. He wouldn't. Although he wore he wore his own shirts and stuff proudly. You know, I think the record, the record company would give him shirts and he wears some of the coolest Bob Marley shirts I've never seen for sale. You know, I don't know if they're just promotional items or what, but he would wear his stuff. And obviously he did interviews, so he was ready to promote himself and the music and the message for sure. Um, But yeah, back to the country stuff, it's, it's, I think that's what it is. They just, it, it touches them in a way. And, and. And in Jamaica, they like all the schmaltzy type of uh, this and that. So they're into, right. you know, uh, even the, mo- the toughest rude boy could be into whatever. Um, that wow. you might think is a little, you know, foo-foo. But, um, it's
1: cool to see the, to, to for us to have a long conversation so we can talk about how a couple things, you know, first and foremost, how the stereotype of, of someone like Bob Marley might be very infactual very not right you know and then two that um the stigma that country music has surely is partly true but also is not and it's cool to know that someone who likes legend could also perhaps find a refuge in country if they look in the right places um it's kind of weird like there's a couple artists that like you listen to reggae well yeah i listen to bob marley it's like will you listen to country yeah i listen to johnny cash and it's like it's funny to see these major like disciples of truth rise through these genres and they just stay, even when they're gone, long gone. Their music is here to stay, man. And it's mm-hmm. beautiful to see that. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to trace those. Guys. Yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. And and yeah, the Bob's it's not going anywhere, that's for sure. It just gets stronger. He sells more records or downloads or whatever every year. Are you serious? Um, yeah, oh yeah. And and you got guys like uh so the guy that wrote the forward to my book, Roger Steffens, he's basically, I would say, you know, in a way, just my my reggae mentor. Wow. When I graduated college in, in 97, emails were just kind of starting and I shot him an email. He had just gotten an email address. He wrote an article in, in his magazine called The Beat. And um, I just emailed him and he responded. And for whatever reason, he he took me under his wing. And he taught me about collecting and collecting memorabilia and what to keep an eye out for. And, and, and this and that. Um, and he even told me about the first time he went to Jamaica and he gets on, he, he and his wife traveled down there in the mid seventies and they're ready to go buy records. They bought a lot of cash just yeah. to go buy singles. They just want to go to the record store. Oh, you have buy, some singles right there. Buy singles. Yeah. And what plays on the radio when they get in the bus is nothing but Patsy Klein and country and western music, he says. And what? they were so di- they were so disappointed because they thought it was just going to be a, a reggae paradise, but instead they were they were bombarded with country and western music. You know, everywhere they turned. I um, love that,
1: man. That's amazing.
2: So it's 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 there, no doubt, no doubt. And um, yeah, man. And even. I, there's Wolverton Mountain. We know that song, right? Yeah, and I've got stuff we could even play, but
1: oh nice Claude gray, right? Yeah, we're we're al- allowed to do that too, man. Look at that yeah. Claude gray, yeah.
2: Yeah, Wolverton Mountain. So lo and behold,
1: Claude King, rather.
2: Yes, Claude King right there. So Roman Stewart, he records his own version of Wolverton Mountain in, in 1975. And my buddy Carl Peterson, who did that Peter Tosh disc. Yeah, who also produced our acoustic albums. He's the one who produced this album and played bass on it. Oh, what? So I called Carl and I said, Carl, you know, tell me what made you guys choose this song. He said, Well, it's just a big song, um, oh. and and we just wanted, you know, we just wanted to do it. Roman really liked it, and I liked it, and so we recorded it. And I and I said, Well, how did how did country music play into your life and into the into Jamaica. Right. And he, and he said, well, they, the, the radio stations in Jamaica would have country hour country, half an hour every week, maybe on a Sunday. And he was hooked. He would listen to his radio um, every Sunday, whenever they were playing country music and he would get music coming down from those radio stations when the, the sky was clear and the winds were right. And he would pick, they'd pick up country music on the transistor radio and um yeah, it's it's wow. uh Man. very cool.
1: Thank you for finding those two singles and tri- and putting that similarity too. I mean, that yes. is wild. Yes. Um, do they sound
2: similar? Well, we could find out if they do.
1: I would love. Let,
2: that. Let's hear this because to me, this is um, this is almost the quintessential reggae version of a country of, of a country western song. Let's see let's, how these volumes are. All right. Um. Here's Claude King, of course.
0: They say don't go mm-hmm. on over the mountain mm-hmm. If you're looking mm-hmm. for a wife Posted on the clouds mm-hmm. as a pretty mm-hmm. young dog He's mighty handy with a gun and a knife and dirty lips are sweeter than honey and
2: over That's great, right? That's such really? a great song. All right, now we are gonna get a mid-70s, which was like the the heyday of Roots Rock Reggae in 1975. Hmm. Um the quintessential reggae treatment.
0: I'm go I'm
2: What, I mean, sir is that not fantastic
0: man and that, that is, is
2: it everything about that is this jamaican from those harmonies to the production to the music being played it's just that's jamaica right there on on seven inches of vinyl man that's beautiful um wow thank you for finding it, that well here's another here so we already talked about yeah. how when bunny and bob first met peter you know he's singing ghost riders in the sky insane so when bob goes into the studio at age 16 hmm. he records supposedly records four songs although only three have been have been found there's a song called terror which has never turned up on any record but bunny says he he no doubt um recorded it well the the third song he records which would be the second single
0: Mm.
2: was one cup of coffee, you know, Claude Gray. Yeah. So what? which is only put out a year a year before Bob. So listen to this for a second. This is Claude. What?
0: I'll just have a cup of tea And I'll go on um, that um, 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 I just run by And let you know mm. That i am leaving town tomorrow
2: mm. I'll cause you no more no sorrow Yeah I'll have a cup of coffee And I'll go that's my favorite part i brought the money like the lawyer said to do so now we have a 16 year old bob marley this isn't the original seven there were, it would be worth you know several thousand dollars oh shit um it's a repress i i've never found out what made bob choose this song because he wouldn't have had a lot of in, you know, people wouldn't have been telling him this and that at that point. He's 16 years old. Yeah, going going into the studio, and he and he records this. What?
0: What? <laughs> right. No way. I just dropped back to let you know wow. that I'm leaving tomorrow. I cause yeah. you no more sorrow, Yeah
1: What a melody What kind of even just the way he delivered that last line? I brought the money like the lawyer said yeah. to do. He had that melody on
0: the list. Yes. yes. Wow.
2: That and is- even more so, I got one more for him. Please. Is just so sound. now we're going to fast forward. So that's about 1961. Bob's 16 years old. This you know the third song he's ever recorded, and he does a country western song. One cup of coffee. Um. Wow. We talked about how highly Selassie visited the island in '66, which really then got a lot of people to so-called convert to Rastafari and and see the light with Selassie, and it, and and Peter Tosh wrote a wrote a song after his visit called "Rasta shook him up," but the Whalers still never did any besides that one little track, to my knowledge, they never they never recorded anything else about Rastafari or Selassie or Jah. Um, until Bob goes back in in 1968, and he takes he takes Daryl Glenn's Crying in the Chapel. This is from 1953. This is the original single here. What? Um, it sounds really bad, so I don't even want to play this version. But okay. if we know Crying in the Chapel, um, you know, Elvis did it. Elvis had a hit. Nah, I don't know if it was a hit with Elvis. But um, listen, here's Crying in the Chapel here. Beauty, we'll see. Oh, me crying in the chapel. My God, we know the song, right?
0: Tears I shed were
2: tears of joy. I know the me, and there's Albus
0: crying in the chapel. Oh, my God. The tears I shed were tears of joy.
2: Now we'll hear in a second. Bob probably used this version from the Orioles, if we had to guess.
0: You saw me crying in the chapel.
2: The tears I shed were tears of joy. Ah. Oh. <laughs> so now we we get to nineteen sixty-eight. And and Bob's Rasta mentor, this guy Mortimer Plano, um, paid for Bob to go into the studio and record this song about Selassie. They changed it to Selassie is the chapel. So it's the first song Bob ever records about Rastafari and Selassie happens to be a cover of a country and Western song. And on this, too, what what you're going to hear probably for the first time is Nyabingi drums, which is... The, the rudical ground nation drumming that is really the foundation of rastafari you know they were talking about rastafari from 1930 and 40 and 50 in the 60s before reggae was even invented so really the right. foundation of rastafari music is 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 called Nyabingi drums death to all white and black oppressors is what Nyabingi might translate to oh, so God. these are guys that just play the hand drums for hours on end, if not days on end. So Bob goes into the studio with Ross Michael and the Sons of Negus, which was a big Nyabingi uh, group, and they record their version of Crying in the Chapel, which sounds a little like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah is the child What? Oh.
2: Wrong, the drums are coming.
0: A word of the Trinity
2: They only made about 26 copies of that. And I think, you know, uh, a dozen or so went to Ethiopia and the rest got distributed around the island to whoever. But that's a reissue, the one you have. Oh, yes. This would be a reissue. Again, if I had the original Slassy as the chapel, you know, we're we're probably talking about $10,000 record at this point. Oh, my God. So this is a reissue. Um, But how cool is that, man?
1: Dude, I, that's blowing my fucking mind.
2: How cool is it. that?
1: That is. Insane. The
2: first time they meet Peter, he's singing a country and western song. The the second single Bob puts out as a 16-year-old is a cover of a country western song. The first time he ever lays down in the studio songs about Rastafari and Selassie and using Rasta Nyabingi drums is a co- cover of a country and western song. I can't believe it. Um that. it's wild
1: man I feel like we've hit on something here that's really never been highlighted.
2: I don't I individually, you know, of course it's been documented what this song is and who originally did it. I've never seen anywhere in any of these books, you know, I've got about 700 books about Bob here. Um oh. I don't think I've ever read someone put them put it all together like this and just make connect the dots, make the connection. Not that it's some revolutionary thing but you know, for me and you, and for and for country western fans that might be interested in this, it's just kind of a cool little tidbit of knowledge.
1: Yeah, man, and you know? your your passion and uh, diligence to the subject is infectious. And so I'm glad that was something that was apparent from our first lesson was just how much you love music and and specifically this genre of music and this approach to living life and and all the uh, high resolution facts that come with it and it's like the fact that we can talk about something fresh here that might not have been put together in this particular thesis and that's just a beautiful thing to see so thank yeah. you for taking the time yeah. to find that that means the world
2: yeah super cool super cool, and there, there's just even more and more the, our, the, the peter tosh album i sent you um, the live, live live at the jamaican world music fest
1: why um
2: of course uh carl pitterson Produced that album as well as as well as as this Wolverton oh. Mountain one, and at that show that was in 1982, when they were they were opening the Bob Marley Performance Art Center. That's why they did this three day festival. Peter was the last act of the of the three days. Started yeah. seven a.m. Followed the Grateful Dead.
1: The Dead played at seven
2: a.m. No, the Dead probably would have started about you know five a.m. Because Peter oh. followed him. Peter was the last act of the three days, oh. and he followed the Grateful Dead. And I've got, I've got the dead set from there.
0: What? So someone
2: else, someone else played that weekend. Skeeter Davis. What who, are you? Who at that point in 1982 was kind of on the tail end of her career, to say the least, right? Yeah,
1: to say the least, washed
2: yeah. up. Not a lot of you know, support going around for her music. And she goes down to the Jamaican World Music Fest and they sang every lyric to every song. She had tears in her eyes. She she couldn't believe the reception that she got from from the Jamaican people down there. Holy shit. And they knew every single one. Oh my God. Um, And they said it just rejuvenated her and put, you know, wind in her sails that she hadn't had in, you know, over a decade. Whoa, man. Very, very cool.
1: We're talking about the most cosmic thing that I've talked with anybody so far in 2021. <laughs> well,
2: <yeah. laughs>
1: that is absolutely astounding. I can't believe that, man. That is yeah. unreal, sir. What so a cool beautiful. thing to, that uh, that you went and discovered. I mean, this just is outrageous. It adds so much depth and explanation as to why I love country music and why I listen to Bob Marley- Almost every day, at least for mm-hmm. one song. And I always sure. have for years. Makes no sense, yeah. but now it does.
2: Yeah. Oh my God. You know, even I don't know if you're on um um Sirius XM, Sirius Satellite, but they oh, just changed the reggae channel to join. It's now called Bob Marley Radio. And it's uh they yeah. just did it maybe a month ago. And I've been I've been asking for it for a while, but they finally did it, and uh it's nothing but Bob and his family and then similar type music, you know, it's, but it's mostly around Bob. And I know I know guys that it's the only thing they listen to and they've been at it for 40 decades for, you know, four decades. It's wow. the only music they listen to. They don't listen to Peter. They don't listen to Burning Spear. They don't listen to Toots. They only listen to Bob. And he has enough material out there. If you've got all the, you know, we, back in the day, we, we trade tape traded just like we did with the Grateful Dead. So, right. um, for, I mean, for a l- many, many years, we're, we're mailing tapes. I'm mailing tapes to France and to Germany and to Japan. And again, Man. my men- my mentor, Roger, who lives out in California, Rogers, you know, he's in his late seventies now. Um, He has the world's largest Bob Marley archive out there. He's actually has sold it uh, to Jamaica and they're going to make a a reggae museum in Montego Bay with his archives. We're talking millions of pieces of memorabilia and tapes and whatnot. Um, But I would go spend several days sleeping on Roger's floor copying, copying cassette tapes. And I would bring it. I would bring a suitcase with me, a backpack with clothes, and a suitcase with empty, uh, blank cassettes, and a suitcase. I would even bring my own tape recorders out there, dual tape, deck, tape decks, and uh, I just as fast as I could, I would just copy, oh. copy, copy this stuff. Um, Whoa! And bring it back, and then archive it all, and eventually transfer it all over to CD and
1: right. Now you probably so, have it all on a hard drive huh Uh
2: maybe I like I said no. I'm still a little still a little old school um so it's still a lot on cassette and CD a lot of mini discs I actually have a mini disc player so I've got a lot of bob on, on mini disc even
1: Man um, Have you ever thought about trying to have you ever opened up a, an online community or, or anything YouTube putting out these little tidbits of information that you know and sharing the joy that you have for this for this energy?
2: You know, I'm I'm definitely part of um, a somewhat small Bob group in on online. Let's say. Now it's a lot of Facebook. It used to be different websites right. that were dedicated to Bob, and that's where a lot of my writing and documenting the books started. I, I documented them for different websites, so they would have a Bob Marley book page, and that was my job. I would go there and document books for for people. Yep. And then that that transferred into me doing my bibliography eventually. But online, we've got a few different Bob Marley groups, and I'm telling you. Uh, I'm not even close to the expert. These guys are the experts. They know their Marley shit inside oh. and out. Wow. They know every musician that played on every track, when it was recorded, what studio it was recorded in. They know. Is I've got two friends from Italy, um, Ivan and Marco, who did a book just about Bob's tours, and they documented you know every tour stop he made, and, and with photos of the venues and the time that the show started. There's guys that have documented how long in between every single song on all these concerts. What? Yeah. Well, how long was the break between, you know, No Woman, No Cry and and Lively Up Yourself? Was it 12 seconds? Was it 30 seconds one night? Holy shit. This guy just documented all that stuff. Um, Whoa. So in that sense, it's very similar to The Dead. Yeah. Where people, certain uh, groups of guys are just and, and there's there's even a girl um who she's into the interviews bob's interviews um and she's the best at it and she has transcribed uh you know every interview that we have available to us my uh, God. A stack of cds this this high which is nothing but the interviews of, of bob
0: wow. and
2: she's gone painstakingly um she's gone through and and transcribed all these interviews for for us you know Oh man, that is very beautiful. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Very cool.
1: Man, thank you for the time, Joe. I mean, this was beautiful, man. I, there's so much to learn. Like it's, it's weird to, you know, it's, it's weird to see this. It's very odd. It's very, it feels like I'm discovering still. And it's just like with music, and this is another, um, L- like a lightning rod of inspiration it's it's <laughs> very crazy you're telling me bob's second single but was it near Bingi drums is that what you're that's what it's called naya
2: Bingi. yeah so Binghi. the naya Bingi drums came out um in 68 when he did selassie as a chapel
1: and
2: so he, i just got random stuff later this is a cd called the wingless angels this is keith richard's naya Bingi group what? So <laughs> Even Keith has this basically is his own Nyabingi group that he's produced uh this album in a, a really nice wooden box set of these guys and it's just all whatever you want to call it indigenous um foundational just roots um music Rastafari with with drums you know the heartbeat we heard that in there it's all the the beat of, you know, a healthy heart at rest, which is why they say reggae attracts so many people and they don't even know it because it's that beat. It's, it's a healthy heart at rest. And it just, it it draws. It draws you right on in, you know. It's I couldn't
1: it stop moving in. when we were playing it. You would just go as if yeah. you're born to, as if it's part yeah. of your human journey and your human <laughs> experience. You just listen to the music. Oh, babies love Bob Marley. Baby everyone loves that music. Maybe.
2: Everyone. Every, is there a tempo?
1: A, is it like a te- is it like a 125, 130? Is that part of it as well?
2: Um you know. I don't know what that tempo is.
0: Yeah, because it's all kind
2: of Would it be like that? Would it be that um, fast or slow, I guess? You tell me. Um,
1: Maybe it's like around 100. Like, it's chill. Like, they're in no rush.
2: Yeah. They're in no no, rush. They're in no rush, man. Time will tell.
0: Whoa. Yeah.
2: Which is another. That's actually one of Bob's more popular that was on kaya is album kaya okay. and that's a naya bingy song so if we go to kaya and we listen to time will tell which is an incredible song yeah. the lyrics of it it's a naya bingy song it's just those drums you know oh, man. that's um, beautiful that is- and when the when bob and bunny and peter went out in 73 to tour they 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 did their own drums the three of them um so
1: man
2: Lots, lots to be had with, with this music and it's all good. It's a good message. You can play for the kids. You can't play for anybody speaks to so many different people around the world and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And, and it's, it's fun to promote and it's fun to listen to and it's, it's meaningful music, you know, his, his, his songs have meaning. That that's the biggest thing that differentiates him from so many popular artists. Um, His songs mean something. They mean a lot. They're they're literally food for some people to get through their day because they may not have any food, but they've got Bob or they've got reggae and that will sustain them throughout the day. Um,
0: Whoa, man.
1: That's a reality. That is a reality.
2: reality. There's a lot more downtrodden people around the world than not. And this music speaks to them loud and clear and they feed off of it. Whoa, man. It's powerful. For sure.
1: There's, my God, Joe, thanks for this. I mean, I learned a million things. Thank you so much.
2: I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. One love, man.
1: One love, Michael. Really fantastic. It's unbelievable. Life is filled with so many very captivating trains of thought. And wonderful splendors that you can dive right into and learn and therefore discover more about yourself and the powers of music and how it is a dream catcher of truth. So uh thanks to Joe Jergensen for coming onto the podcast and sharing his knowledge. Thank you guys for listening. Please feel free to follow on Spotify, review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on Patreon to support the podcast so we can stay ad-free. And uh, join the Cosmic Country Club on DanielDonato.com. Boy, man, we released the most exclusive content on that email chain before it goes anywhere. And we just cut a new record. Those people are going to hear it first. The insights that I'm going to share about cutting the record going to be shared there first. Guitar tabs, videos, all of the Cosmic Country content you could ask for. Thank you, guys. Stay patient. Stay persistent. Stay positive. Stay cosmic.